Well, good morning. It's good to be back here with you all this morning, picking up in our uh, sermon series that we've called The Old You. And so far over the past three weeks, what we've been talking about is really identifying and understand what it means that a Christian can say that I'm a new person. Of course, the way that we do that, by asking what's so different about that new person and the old self. And this is at the core of what it means to be saved, what it means to be a Christian, understanding this principle that in salvation, a new creation has taken shape, been given life, and is now in the driver's seat. We understand that the same way that we understand freedom. There is no concept of freedom unless we understand the concept of bondage. There is no concept of liberty unless we understand indignity. By contrast, uh, these things are able to stand out to us. And it's by contrast that we also see it ourselves. This week, we're looking at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2, and I am skipping about half of chapter 1 from where we left off last week in verse 14. But really, this is, I think, the inspiration for this entire series. Over the past three weeks, we've talked about our old self and how we, the old self can be identified as completely desperate and in need of a Savior, unable to save ourselves, completely oblivious to our need of a Savior, but also of God's greater plan at the work since the creation of time, and then completely unsecure or in doubt and unprotected. All three of these things come together in culmination whenever we look at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2. And so if you would, have your Bibles open and ready to read along with me when I read there. But before we read from this passage, I'd like to pray. This morning we'll be reading from verse 1 all the way through verse 5, but our focus will mostly be on the first three verses. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for this opportunity this morning to gather in your house, in your name, as alien residents of a country that we do not belong to because we have placed our identity in your kingdom in heaven. God, I pray that as we turn to you this morning that you would humble our hearts and help us to hear the truth of your gospel, the basis of the good news that we celebrate, and help us to learn how we are to worship you and honor you as your children who have been adopted in your name. God, I pray that as we turn to your word, that you would open the eyes of our heart, that we would be able to behold the awesome truths that are found in your law. In Jesus' heavenly name I pray and ask all of these things. Amen. The Bible says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Isn't that just an incredibly inspiring place to start this morning? 
You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Children of wrath, following the prince of the power of the air, carrying on the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. I'm uplifted by the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2. You know, Ephesians chapter 2 is one of the most encouraging books or chapters in the entire Bible, in my opinion, mainly because when you get down to verse 8, and it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own works, but this is a free gift of God. That's incredibly uplifting. And I realize how insanely impactful the love of God is. How big it is and how immeasurable it is and how much it impacts my life personally. A lot of times we want to zoom in to that verse that blesses us and helps us to see how big God's love is. Let's realize verse 1 through 3 precedes those for a reason. This message that you were dead, that you were following something, that you were trapped, that you were enslaved. Well, that message follows it or precedes it because the immensity of God's grace in salvation is amplified in our understanding when we see our condition before we were saved clearly. Being able to look at the old self and understand what's going on here magnifies the picture of how great God's love is. And you might be here this morning exploring the Christian faith for the first time, maybe even having some concepts about it. Maybe you've even heard the gospel before and uh, perhaps somebody didn't place a lot of emphasis on this. But I think it's important that we place a great deal of emphasis on the fact that the gospel does not begin with the truth that God has come to save us. It begins that you needed God to come and save you. In fact, the entire basis of salvation and and the goodness of the gospel, the sweetness of that good news, hinges itself on the basis that we are in need of a Savior. We have to accept that this diagnosis of being dead is based not only on our condition, not only on who we are, but in fact our acceptance of this creates the foundation of our own faith. So how do we get to a place where we can accept that we were dead or accept our death? In salvation, the picture that we create is, you know, we we tell the story that in baptism, we're actually in identifying with Christ. The entire process of being baptized is a picture of being dead. Identifying our death to an old self. Being buried the way that Christ was buried so that we can be resurrected. And the same power that's mentioned in Ephesians chapter 1 that raised Christ from the grave is the same power that resurrects a new person to new life. This picture is important. But in order to see it, a person has to be made alive first. This is a hard truth to gather. A dead person cannot see their own dead condition. 
And I stand here this morning doing my best to explain that every person in the entire world was born spiritually dead because they inherited a sin nature that makes them dead. And the truth is that if you are not saved, if you've not experienced new life, you cannot see the dead condition of your life. Think about how that's described. Can a dead thing see? No. Not only that, but a dead thing's completely hopeless. Can a dead thing reach up and pull itself out of a grave? No. A dead thing's trapped in death. And this is the same for every person everywhere. It doesn't matter if a person was raised in church. Paul's writing to a group of Gentile believers in Ephesus, and he speaks throughout chapters 1 and 2. We see him refer to us and you and we. And those words are describing the Jewish group of people, the Gentile group of people, and then all of them together. And he says, hey, we were raised with this understanding of God and this revelation of who God was. But even until I understood what it meant that I was dead, I could not see my own spiritual deadness. Even though I was raised in a spiritually mature family. Shoot, Paul was a religious elite. He was a Pharisee. He went to school for this stuff. He knew it backwards and forwards. And still, in his deadness, he could not see. In our lives, that means that even if you were raised in church, even if you were saved at five years old or eight years old, at a young age, if you are dead, you cannot see what deadness actually exists in your life. It's the same for religious Jews and pagan Gentiles. To be able to accept our death, we have to be able, we have to be made alive so that we can see these things. And just to emphasize that point, this is a universal truth. Every person everywhere was born with a dead condition. Every person everywhere. There's not one person alive today ever has been born other than Jesus who was not born with a sinful condition inside of them. The nature of sin existed inside of them. And this is a, a hard truth when, when you know, I'm, I'm speaking with people and they say, you know, I heard this great testimony of this Christian who was completely converted and they left this life of addiction and you wouldn't believe the life that they were living. They were trapped in all of this sin and they were saved and their life was completely transformed. Their testimony is incredible. I wish I had a testimony like that. But I don't. I don't have a testimony like that. I was, I was 14 whenever I was saved. I was raised in church, lived my life. I really didn't do a whole lot of bad. I was basically a good person anyway. If we understand the reality of what the Bible is teaching us, if this condition is universal, your testimony is incredible. A dead thing came to life. 
Your testimony is just as incredible as anyone else's because God did a work in you that is so big, so gigantic, so powerful, based in love. Your testimony is incredible. And just in case I haven't made myself clear, there's no exceptions to this. Every person everywhere is born to the same sinful condition, which means for us, as, as we're going along and we're living life and, and we say, well, you know, I really am not that bad of a person. And maybe if you're visiting here this morning and you're thinking, I don't know what kind of gospel this is, but I don't think I'm going to subscribe to this. Isn't church supposed to be uplifting? Isn't it supposed to, to make us see how, how what God's done in our life and what he's doing for us and we have all of these blessings? I really don't want to accept this truth of death. The reality is, and I'll come back to it and I'll keep saying it, what makes God's love and his grace so big is when we acknowledge this death. And so the truth is, for Christians, we can either say in the past tense or in the present tense, we were dead or we are dead. There is no, I'm not dead. There is no, I wasn't dead. And if you want to say that this morning, I would contend that your arrogance is far greater than anything I could confront as a human being. We either were dead or we are presently dead. Hard reality to face. But it gets worse when we see what this dead condition actually causes for us. And this is a confusing thing. I mean, people aren't being born dead. What does this preacher mean or the Bible mean whenever it speaks of this? Jesus said when speaking with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, in order to be saved, you must be born again. Now, Nicodemus obviously wasn't dead. Nicodemus asked, am I supposed to go back into my mother's womb so that I can be born again? How is a man supposed to be born twice? And Jesus responded, how do you not know these things? Well, the reality is we have to be made alive to see them. Well, it requires the grace of God to even begin this process. <coughs> and the first thing that we can see is that this transference from death to life is of a spiritual nature. It means that spiritually we are dead and we are made spiritually alive in the grace of God. And it says that we're dead in our trespasses and in our sins. Isn't this interesting? I can accept the implications that the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And that because, well, I'm not a perfect person, I've never claimed to be, I have earned and deserve all on my very own the judgment of God. Well, there's sin in my life. I've missed the mark. I'm not perfect. I deserve death. I can accept those implications. But it's a bit more devastating when we realize that there's no one that ever stood a hope, that never had a hope not to be imperfect. Because the Bible does not teach that people go out into this world and they miss the mark and as a consequence they become sinners. The Bible teaches that every person is born with a nature that causes them to sin. It's a chicken, the chicken and the egg argument. Which came first? It was the nature that was inside of us. 
We were dead in our trespasses and our sins. As a consequence of being dead, we lived in trespasses and we lived in sins. And there's two words as a distinction there. Trespasses describes the active disobedience or the trespassing against God, where sin, if anyone's familiar with archery, is actually a term whenever you miss a bullseye. To sin simply means that you're not perfect. To trespass against God means that you have moved against Him in willful disobedience to His will. You've actively done something wrong. To sin means that you just missed the mark. The expectation of the Bible isn't that we're a morally good person. The expectation of God isn't that we're basically or essentially good. The expectation of God is that we are perfect as He is perfect. The sin nature is inside of us. What an issue. You look at the state of the world. We've been doing this experiment for some time. If you just look at world history, I mean, we've had different forms of government over and over again. We've had democracies and republics and democratic republics and monarchies and democratic monarchies and this and that and the other dictatorships, different economic systems. How much should we support the people who are on the bottom? How much should we protect them? How how much should we raise them up and help them and give them a fighting chance? At what time is it unjust? And, And we've tried, and it's been one big experiment. If you look at any world history textbook, it has been a giant experiment. Try this and try that and see which one works best. And after all this time, we're sitting back, and I don't think anyone will argue against this. We still haven't figured it out. Why can't we just figure it out? Why can't we just come together? It's not that hard. Why don't we just come together? The Beatles figured it out. Come together. Right now. By the way, I did some math. That song came out in 1969, which is 52 years ago. 52 years ago before that song was written was 1913. That's how old that song is now. Does that blow your mind? I feel like that's like contemporary. Because we're still singing the same song. Why can't we just come together? Why is this so hard to figure out? I've got the answer. The issues that we're facing in an imperfect world with imperfect governments and imperfect leaders cannot be fixed by legislation. It cannot be fixed by more education. It cannot be fixed by more indoctrination. The only way that we will be able to fix this world is with the resurrection. The only way that we will ever see the world come together is with the power that resurrected Jesus from the grave, the same power that resurrects dead, spiritually deficit, imperfect humans to life. You can't get smart enough. You can't constrict morality. You can't, you can't just memorize catechisms. It requires new life. It cannot be fixed by legislation. It cannot be fixed by education. It cannot be fixed by indoctrination. 
It requires the resurrection. And you think that's bad. We don't even, we, we haven't even begun to see the picture that this is for the sinner who is trapped in this dead state. Look at the end of verse 2. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The dead person who is ignorant to their own condition cannot even see which way they are going. I think about this. A dead fish flowing in a stream, I've never seen one go upstream. They're always going with the current. I've never seen them fight against it. In fact, my bro- no, that's a bad illustration. It doesn't connect here. It's just a story about me and my brother fishing and how I would trick him into thinking I was better than I was. But I won't waste your time with it. Never seen a dead fish fight against the current. It requires life. Well, the dead human also doesn't fight against the current. They're flowing along. They cannot see their their blind condition. They can't see how they're enslaved to this world. They can't even see what they're doing. They're following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. No one's exempt from this. Even if you're alive in Christ, you once lived just like this. They were by nature children of wrath. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath. What a terrible picture. Our world today has kind of propagated this idea (coughs) that everything that we need would be instantly gratified and that we would receive it immediately. And that's only been made worse and made worse. That everything that we have should just come to us immediately. Why should I wait for anything? I should just respond to the passions of my flesh and do whatever I want. I should carry out the desires of the body and the mind. Everything that I do that that, that is against God's will, the reason I do it is because there's a nature inside of me that moves against Him. Inside of me, there's a desire in my mind that moves against God's will. And if I'm dead and I'm just following along, there's no resistance or fighting against this sin nature. If I'm dead and I'm just following along, I'm just going to act on it. You know what blows my mind? I was on TikTok. I don't get on TikTok very often. But I got on TikTok the other day. You have to connect with society every once in a while. But you guys, I'm an old man. I may not look it, but on the inside, I'm older than all of you. New trend. Moms talking about their parenting style. I don't teach my children abstinence. What is that? Why should you save sex for being married? You can't fight it anyway. Kids are going to be kids. I have family that have said the same thing. They're raising my cousins. They've said the same thing. You can't fight it. Save sex. You can't change it anyway. How delivered are we? 
to a sinful nature that is born inside of us that we can't even see what we're missing. And for some of you folks who are as old as I am, we, we kind of have a tendency to be a little dogmatic about these issues of moral purity inside of the church. And so let me be clear. We approach it from the wrong angle. When we teach of the prohibitions of the Bible as something that is meant for us to follow, and we miss the entire point, that God, in fact, has something better for us, that these prohibitions aren't there to constrict us or to force us into some sort of bubble, but they are there to actually ensure the promises that He's given to us. For example, don't steal. That's a prohibition. You should not steal. It's probably a bad approach to come at that from the angle that, well, if you're caught stealing, you will go to jail. Probably a bad angle to say, well, you're hurting the person that you're stealing from, so you shouldn't steal. You're damaging your reputation. How about this? If you've ever interacted with somebody that is a kleptomaniac. I also have some of those in my family. You see what they're really causing for themselves. They're robbing from themselves any self-perspective or self-image that they are capable of obtaining anything in this life. And it's a positive reinforcement circle because once, once they start stealing and they start saying, this is how I get things and this is the only way that I can get things, well, now they're stuck because now they're, they're incapable and they can't provide for themselves or anyone else. What they're really robbing from themselves is their own self-image. What you're really robbing is your own joy. Now, think about it. The first time you saved up for something big and bought it. But this is my car. I bought it. It's not the best car. It's my car, though. And I earned it. Back to sex. You know what we're throwing away when we fail to teach abstinence the way that the Bible teaches it? You know what you're really missing out on? That magical moment when a husband and a wife decide to give over all those awkward thoughts that come around this topic when they come together for the first time. When they take hold of something that no one in this entire world has ever experienced before. When in their mind there is no doubt or insecurity Because they're safe. Because they're confident. What you're really missing out on is far greater than anything you can ever achieve by delivering yourself to the desires of your flesh. And then, of course, today there's the issue of gender dysphoria. People no longer wanting to identify with the way that they were born. Robbing themselves, again, from a self-image that promotes any form of acceptance. They say that they do it for love, but what they're really missing out on is self-love. In fact, the real part that makes me cry out is this reality that there is self-loathing. 
I can't imagine hating yourself so much that you wouldn't be okay with being who you are. I bring these topics up for the purpose of application. Because when we look at these, and some of these issues are so far away from our mind that it's impossible for us, the good Christian, to sit here this morning and to say, well, that's that kind of death, that's, that's not me. But there is no exception. Every one of us once lived in death. Living life according to the old self. Following the prince of the power of the air. Living according to the passions of their flesh and carrying out the desires of the body and mind. And they were by nature children of wrath. Wouldn't it be awful to talk about God's wrath this morning? And what He's done for us. I'll admit, this has been probably the most encouraging sermon I've preached since coming to Denver Street. And I'm glad you are all here for it. Why would I go on and preach about God's wrath? Why does this old self matter? I've been a Christian for so long now, why can't I just forget about it? It's the same reason we celebrate Veterans Day and Memorial Day. So that we don't forget what it costs to have freedom and liberty in our country. The reason we talk about God's wrath is so that we understand how big His love is. Without it, there's no measurement. Michelle's been just a fantastic wife this week. She's just incredible, just amazing. So considerate, I mean, just getting ahead of me in every... And I thought, you know, I should do something as a husband to show her how much I love her. And so I said, Michelle, I love you so much. That lake that's drying up by our house, Jack Nolan Lake, I'm, I'm just going to take a car, I'm going to drive through it because I love you. I'm going to do that because I love you. Isn't that great? What? That's a stupid idea. Why would you do that? It'd carry a bit more significance if Michelle took a paddle boat out there and tipped over and I jumped into the lake to save her and rescue her. Wouldn't it? Jesus says, I love you so much that I'm going to give up all the glories of heaven so that I can come down to an earth that is totally depraved and so that I can live in suffering and anguish, being mocked by the leaders of the day, so that I can be raised up to die a death that is cursed so that I could hang from a tree. I'm going to do that because I love you. Jesus, that's stupid. Oh wait, you missed the important part. Because what I'm actually doing is I'm taking the punishment that you deserve and I'm moving it through time and I'm putting it in that moment on the cross so that when I die, I am dying for you.
so that you, who were dead in your trespasses and sin, might experience for the first time life. This is the crux of the gospel. And I love this interruption in verse 4. Things are awful. You're awful. You're a terrible person. You're totally depraved. There's nothing you can do about it. Everything sucks. And there's no hope for you of ever getting anything but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, made us alive together in Christ. This morning, I want to appeal to you the best that I can. I want to ask, do you say that you were dead? Or do you say that you are dead? There is no option C. This isn't an open-ended answer. As we take a moment to respond as a church by singing a song and lifting our praises to God this morning, this is a time for you to reflect, to ask yourself that question and respond however you'd like. And there's a couple of ways you can respond. You can come talk to me. You can get me after the service if you don't want to do that in front of everyone. You can respond right where you're at, just between you and God. And you know what? If you respond this morning, know this. You're not responding alone. You are surrounded this morning by people who are praying for you. Not just their own response, but they're praying for your response. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I pray that you would guide us this morning as we respond to the proclamation of your word, that you'd help, us, help it to be applied to our lives, that you continue to make us humble before you as we identify who we were. God, and I'm so thankful for who you have made us. In Jesus' heavenly name I pray, amen.